Yes. Making a video. Making a video. Episode 93 of Rank and Review. This episode, regular guest Matthew Risling is going to join me to discuss Water Monsters. That's six films that have terrible creatures from the depths of the ocean eating people. I don't know what more I need to say other than my typical warning of coarse language and spoilers, and giving you the option to send your feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N. R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com That's how you can get a hold of me, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Let me know what you think of the show, give me some suggestions for the future, and uh, tell me where I got right, tell me what I got wrong, and tell that other film fan in your life that there's this podcast called Blank and you. I hope you enjoy this fun edition So we have uh, former champion Matthew Risley back on Rank and Review for our 93rd episode. And I've been looking forward to this one. We've got uh, a strange bunch of genre entries, and we've had a bit of a genre drought on the show. I mean, not that I don't mind talking about time travel or, or Robin Williams or boobs or, you know, <laughs> the many other things that have been in this <laughs> podcast for the last few months. But um, when I started out with Rankin Review, I, my idea was genre cinema, like really focus on horror and sci-fi. And what we have here is some six, you know, perhaps B or C grade horror and sci-fi movies on the theme. Oh, a lot of them are B grade. Oh, yeah. I would say most of them are B grade. <laughs> but in a good way, in a smiley face B grade. Uh, mm-hmm. The theme is water monsters. And uh, my, my love slash horror of sharks have been well documented on the podcast, but I didn't pick this list. You did. Why water monsters, brother? Oh, I've got a super fascination for water monsters. Um, I mean, I love ghosts, but we've sort of, or I feel that I've sort of stripped mine that genre. Um, but my secondary passion is water monsters. Uh, I'm not quite as passionate about sharks as you are, but all manner of unknown tentacly lurky things in the deep um i like to go scuba diving when i can um and just being underwater there's just this whole other world of things and this whole other world is just waiting to wrap you up in its unsavory tentacles and draw you into its beak um so yeah this is this is and i think my love of water monsters might have actually stemmed from an obscure Peter Benchley novel called *The Beast* that really no tickled way. my fancy. Yeah, that's so funny. I mean, I, I mean, it could have gone back to um, was that Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea*. There was a giant squid. I remember that as a kid. But well, that's the, the first beast. squid I remember encountering. That's for sure. Other than Popeye. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there was that horrible animated *Lord of the Rings*, and there were tentacly, tentacly things coming out of the water in yeah. one of the scenes there that did make it into the Peter Jackson one, which I was absolutely delighted yeah. by back in 2001. The Watcher. I, the I, Watcher. I mean, going to my shark thing. I mean, 
I find the water itself scary, especially the ocean with the currents and the vastness of it. Like, the water itself, that can kill you. It's salt water. You can't even drink really and get nourishment from it. I mean, that should be threat enough, let alone <laughs> this, this huge thing with this huge gaping maw that will happily eat you for a snack. But And you know it's just looking at you with its giant yellow eyeballs as you dangle your feet off of the dock. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing. I, 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 again and again, I go back to that. I, I, I'm a skeptical guy who loves horror stuff. I don't believe in Bigfoot, but if somebody hit Bigfoot with their car, I would be thrilled. Like, I would be genuinely <laughs> thrilled. But I don't think that there are Thunderbirds or dragons or gnomes or Bigfoot out there to be found on land. But I guarantee you that there's some sea monsters out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was not too long ago, I was diving off of Cuba and there's almost nothing in the water where we were because it was so salty but there's just this big massive I don't know what it was like a sturgeon or something and I mean it was a bottom feeder it wasn't aggressive in any way but that thing was a fucking sea monster it looked like a sea monster it had the properties of a sea monster um, and that was just in the shallow waters you know whatever 20 meters down imagine if you go 100 meters down all yeah. of the awful things I remember as a kid seeing an old IMAX documentary where they were using like uh, pinging technology, like submarine technology, to, to ping back results from the depths of the sea that were too high pressure for them to get to. And they were getting back like what these creatures that they, they read as like jellyfish that were like the size of apartment buildings <laughs> swimming around <Yeah>. down there. <laughs> We, we can't even build a structure that can withhold the pressure, but there are these huge creatures swimming around down there. Like, the ocean is terrifying. Let's just not beat around the bush. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they were starting to discover that stuff in, like, the 1920s when deep-sea diving was in vogue. Um, and I think that must have... I can only imagine H.P. Lovecraft caught some of the fascination with that kind of stuff, which is why he's got these giant sublime monsters in the depth that yeah. are just waiting to wake up and devour us. It is easier to get to the moon than to the certain places at the bottom of the ocean, apparently. So yeah. It's uh, that's really unknown territory. So why not believe in monsters down there? In, in a way, it's yeah. a, it's 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 a more credible uh, idea for a horror movie than most. <laughs> Something washes up on the beach that we haven't seen before and starts eating people. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, uh, I guess unless there's something else you want to say by introduction, I'll, I'll list off the six movies we're going to talk about and we can get to work. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I think we kind of break, break them off into interesting groups of two in a way. We kind okay. of have two water monster movies that are based on the immediate fallout of Jaws. That being Orca the Killer Whale <laughs> and Joe Dante's Piranha. People saw Summer Blockbuster, Fish in the Water... Let's see what we can, you know, do without being Jaws, but but rip it off as readily as possible. <laughs> yeah, still be Jaws. Yeah. Especially Orca. We don't want to be Jaws, but make this as much like Jaws as you can. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, then we have two productions that were originally entitled uh, or made for network television. We have Peter Benchley's The Beast, which you mentioned, and we have Red Water, starring the ever-underrated Lou Diamond Phillips. <laughs> And then we have two straight B-level monster movies in uh, Deep Star 6 and Deep Rising from the 80s and 90s, respectively. So those are the six movies that we're going to be talking about. Thanks for returning once again, my brother, to Rankin Review. 
there's something strange in the water at Lost River Lake. Something you can't see, something you can't feel, until it's too late. Started in a Texas pond. Barbara! There's something in here! into America's waterways to churn quiet streams into rivers of living death. Keep your hand out of the water. What's wrong with the water? Dad! Stay back! Stay back! The water is filled with carnivorous fish. The deadliest man-eaters of all. In schools of hundreds, they attack and devour anything that moves with razor-sharp teeth that can strip a man to the bone in less than a minute. There'll be no way to contain him. He'll be able to swim up every river system in the country. There's a school of piranha heading straight downstream towards your resort. So uh, Joe Dante is a, you know, great genre director. If you're a fan of films like Inner Space or the Gremlins franchise, you know, uh, he, he recently did a 3D family horror movie called The Hole. He's uh, He's been around the block more than a few times, but uh, the movie that put him on the... Uh, on the blog, or put him sort of uh, in notice, is what we're talking about right now. 1978's unabashed B-level Jaws, Jaws ripoff, Piranha. Um, it's interesting when you go to approach for reviewing a movie like this, like, objectively, is Piranha a good movie? Well, I don't know if I can argue, right, succinctly that this is a good movie, but what I will argue, and hope to, you know, maybe I won't argue, but my, my position will be is that it is a very entertaining <laughs> movie. Yeah, I I really liked Piranha. I was surprised uh, by how much I was enjoying watching it. Um, yeah, it had all of the trappings of obviously, um, you know, riding the wave of Jaws, and uh, actually with Deep Star Six as well. It had the combination of a sea monster with kind of an '80s slasher aesthetic to it, um, yeah. and I thought. I thought they pulled it off pretty well in Piranha. There's a goofy quality to it. Like, it never really lets you feel super horrified. But there are a few genuinely horrifying moments. But, like, uh, there's a funness to the movie, which I appreciate. Um, it's also surprisingly backwards. Like, it was made in 1978, but it seems like such an ancient artifact. Like... I, I, jumping to some like rates and one of the great sort of twists of the movie is that the fact that polluting the river saves the day, I find <laughs> hilarious. Like hilarious, <laughs> and uh, especially because of the running uh, minor theme with these movies of uh, you know man's environmental um, negligence waking up these ancient evils. That will be a, a theme. Like some of these are heavy-handed environmental movies, and this one is like the opposite. <laughs> like, thank God the they had that, is that terrible pollutant to put in the river. What if they didn't? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, the piranhas would have reached uh, open water, and then they would have bred, and then they would have killed everything. Such was the promise that was given to us at the end of the movie. Instead, they became Flying Piranha in a film directed by James Cameron. Which, yeah, the Piranha movies um, have done a pretty good job of launching careers of their directors. That's right. Or at least the original ones. I, I don't think Piranha 
double D or three double D is going to be making any star directors. But I, I mean, if Piranha 2 the spawning can launch James Cameron, you never know. <laughs> Who knows? Um, I also find that the dynamic between our two leads, I think uh, Bradford Dillman and Heather Menzies, uh, mm-hmm. the, the dynamic of their relationship is very strange. She basically like shows up and demands a bunch of shit from him. <laughs> And yeah, he and then he's pissy about it. And he's like, don't tell me what to do. Fine, but, I'll get my keys. Exactly. <laughs> but wherever she wants to go. As far as who he is or why she would require his help specifically or, like, why they would have a relationship <laughs> where she could just show up and ask him to be an action hero for her is never really even addressed <laughs> at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's not to the movie's detriment. No, it's no. Just, it's just that kind of wacky movie. Why stop long enough for that? Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, there are a couple of nice sort of uh, early act kills to the movie, I think. I don't think that the grandfather and the, the, the little boy is executed that well, but the idea of a little boy uh, left adrift in, his, in the boat with the, you know, his grandfather had been eaten it was kind of horrifying. And uh, the, the story of the old man who you know, had the dog and he got his feet really badly mauled and he managed to crawl up the bank, like... They were effectively able to express the danger while showing it as little as possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing that kind of impressed me, which I'm jumping way ahead here, uh, is this movie didn't shy away from killing kids. Nope. When there were kids swimming in the water and that piranha have that feeding day on those campers, like, they just went for it. Yeah. And actually, in general, this movie just went for it. Um, <laughs> I'm referring to some of the early nudity scenes where I was... Uh, quite gratified to see some woman taking off her clothes for no particular reason to jump in uh you know this government pool that's fenced off that says do not jump in yeah and i think in a way that you can only get in one of these late 70s movies i think i caught a glimpse of bush hair which i i I was really happy with (laughs) well and how it's weird how it's presented all the nudity is so perfunctory Again, this is the age before the internet. One of the big things that this movie had to bring to the audience was titty. <laughs> like, seriously, it's kind of hilarious. And like uh, how everything stops for some titties <laughs> every now and then. <laughs> but it's it's weirdly charming. In another movie, like if this was happening in a movie that was made in 2017, I would say, well, that's in poor taste, you guys. But there's something really charming about seeing this 1978 movie it's it's weirdly kind of cute compared to the level of depravity that we'd be subjected to in like you say the piranha remakes right yeah it's almost paradoxically naive exploitation yeah there's another scene where two of the camp counselors are talking about maybe going for a swim and she just starts to take off her shirt but she's interrupted but we we just get a little little bit of booby just cuz <laughs> right? it had been a little while yeah we want to keep you guys paying attention um another interesting thing is that the heroes are the villains of this movie like what do you mean by that the main character uh i don't, I don't remember anybody's names the names are so not very important i guess maggie uh, leads our, our main character, Paul, to this government or this secret installation, which is studying piranhas. And she basically forces her way into the facility and drains the pool. Oh, sorry, can we... I, I'm just going to interrupt you here. Can we talk about the most bizarre element of this movie? Yeah. Which is, like, 
a gremlin shark that was walking around in the lab uh, in the lab um which i had to contact you about a couple of days ago before recording this because i wasn't sure if that happened or if that was in like some drunken memory that i had um it is certainly a strange and random inclusion but i will attest to it existing yes in the lab we see i believe a stop-motion animated creature scurrying about it's it's glimpsed a few times in the lab and then we never hear from it again for the rest of the movie there and gone but yes indeed (laughs) But uh, and, like somebody decided, like I could see deciding to film that because maybe it was for something, but I can't dis- see how they decided to keep it in. Like at some point when they're doing the editing, they have to realize that these stop motion piranha shark gremlins are not, they're not part of the movie. It's not <laughs> even part of this universe. But it would have cost time and money to make that special they effect. They don't even have the same aesthetic as the rest of <laughs> Yeah, I think that must be it. They must have got somebody that was good at those kind of special effects or, you know, like somebody's friend had done it or they just thought it was such a great thing that they decided to keep it in. But it it would be like, I don't know, if in Deep Star 6 there was an Ewok that was just scurrying about for a few seconds and we don't see it again. Well, I think that it's my point is just the idea of putting the fun front and center over in front of everything, including logic. Like I said, our heroes break into this installation and drain the pool of piranhas into the river system. It is 100% their fault that the piranhas were set free and set upon these children. And they don't seem to wear that fact at all in the rest of the movie. Like, so our heroes are kind of, you know, like I say, responsible for all the, all the death, but they don't seem to be owning it. Like, they're still trying to stop the piranha, but they, I, I don't... They, they spend a lot of time blaming the scientist, but the scientist didn't drain the pool, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and he, he was kind of a noble character, particularly compared to them. Yeah. Or, or at least, I mean, I guess Bradford Dillman was um, self-sacrificing at the conclusion, but otherwise... Um, yeah, it was it was their fault. That that the doctor, Doctor Robert Hoke, uh, was played by Kevin McCarthy. If we have any uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers fans, he was in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and for one scene in the nineteen seventies Body Snatchers, um, I like that dude. He usually he's a bit of an over actor, but I, I like him. <laughs> Yeah, I found myself on his side. I actually thought our heroes were being a little bit mean to him, even when he was still an ambiguous figure. And again, if it had been played that they were doing that to him because they were, you know, trying to divert their own responsibility. But no, they never accept the responsibility. It's all (laughs) fucking his fault. Good thing it's his fault and he's dead, so we don't have to think about this anymore. But again, I think I'm asking hard questions of a movie that, that, that doesn't demand this, right? The idea is that there is piranha... And how are we going to stop them? And I like so much about how the movie's made and the aesthetic of it that I get past the fact that, frankly, the piranha don't look that great at all. Yeah. Well, there's another fun bit, which is I think uh, I didn't know how to feel about this when I first started. But when they started traveling down the river on that raft, which was bound together um, with rope or something that the piranhas could end up eating through. um, But that whole trip down the river in the water where there are these flesh-eating piranhas and you you could if you stuck your hand in it maybe they're there maybe they're not so there's this element of like don't touch the floor the floor is made of lava right um and it's kind of a fun adventure that way it seemed like it would be kind of fun to be on that raft um navigate the river that may or may not be churning with piranha at any (laughs) given moment 
And and again, part of me says, if that's the case, maybe it's a little longer to go by land, but <laughs> go by land. <laughs> that's the better but way. That's not going to make a very fun B piranha movie. <laughs> well, uh, and they actually did do. I mean, they had the they they had the. Um, doomsday clock of him wanting to save his daughter who was at camp so he he really did want to get to her camp as quickly as, as, quick possible. as possible That's and true. down the river was the best way that is true adequate defense by matthew risley <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna defend this movie damn it <laughs> well and again like i say uh I, I have a hard time getting super enthusiastic saying you know joe dante's piranha classic you must see it, but I mean, I, I really enjoy watching it. I'm glad that it's part of my collection. Uh, it's it's B movie fair, and it is so Jaws light. There's even this sort of sub story about a guy promoting the uh, waterways, and and you know, the, <laughs> there can't be any kind of you know biological disaster going on. Not in the middle of this grand opening. <laughs> Never happen. You know, <laughs> really openly and happily, merrily stealing from a better movie. <laughs> Which um, probably should have mentioned this off the top, but something that I noticed with all of these movies, um, the theme is, what is it? Horrors from the Deep? Would, uh, would I'm calling this, this one? one Water Monsters, unless you have something better water for monsters. me. No, uh, that's fine. But it could also be um, quick knockoffs of other successful movies. Because yeah. all of them, uh, I, think, I think every one of the ones on the list is coasting off of something else's success it's a response to something else anyway absolutely and even uh, one of the things um this will come up again with various leading men uh but bradford dillman who plays our uh protagonist who seemed kind of like he was affecting a charlton heston delivery and then i looked him up on imdb and lo and behold he was in escape from the planet of the apes Mm -hmm. kind of reprising charlton heston and we get this well in deep star six i'll talk about that guy too uh but like from the plotting to the casting to the monsters everything about these says we want to cash in on something else's success (laughs) to varying degrees of success and you know what I'm not going to wag my finger too severely at it. A lot of movies that I love were rip-offs of other movies, you know? Yeah, th- I think there's there's a difference between sort of taking a good idea and running with it and, and just outright stealing. And I think that, you know, these ones ride that line for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> the, there's but a... it's totally different, because Jaws was about a flesh-eating shark, and this is about a million flesh-eating, much smaller fish. So there's not much in common. It's a million times different. I wanted to mention Barbara Steele, who plays this evil Dr. Menger's <laughs> character, who's always a, oh, the, the, the piranha. There's no way that the piranha could survive, and there's no way they could possibly be in the ocean, and there's no way I could possibly be evil. <laughs> <laughs> I love how thick it's laid on with her. I love that we, like, close on her in this really not comforting <laughs> line, saying, oh, don't worry, the piranha will never make it to the open ocean. <laughs> <laughs> It's so heavy-handed, and yet I'm 100% on board. So that's kind of how I feel about the movie Wholesale. Um, I actually thought not not her ending, but sort of the climax of the piranha plot was kind of like having them, the fish eat little children in the water, um, I thought was a surprisingly brave choice. I also thought uh, our hero... Charlton Heston light um, yeah. his fate when he he goes underwater and he's got to turn on the pollution to bravely pollute the water 
and he's running out of air, but he has to stay underwater a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and then the piranhas start nibbling on him, and then they finally reel him out of the water, but we never actually see him regain consciousness. Our last shot of him is his limp body propped up against a tree, something like that, and there's a chance he's alive, and there's a chance he's not alive, but it's not it's not like Richard Dreyfus and um, Roy Scheider. Uh, they're Roy Scheider um, kicking to shore. We don't actually know if they've given us a happy ending. Yeah. No, they have to leave it with that bleak sort of open ending, that, that popular sort of Michael Myers feeling. At the, when you leave the theater, you can't feel safe. The next time you go swimming at your lake, you're going to be thinking about Piranha, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it works. It's a, it's, a, it's a shadow of Jaws, but I welcome it. Good enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm gonna also echo you. I'm not sure if I explicitly said this. Um, for all of the movies on the list, uh, even the ones I like, th- I mean, this is gonna be a hard list to rank because Weirdly none of difficult. them are actually good. <laughs> so this one tickled me just right, but it's not. Don't drop everything and go and see Piranha. Exactly. Graves Point has always been a paradise. A vacationer's dream. Until now. What was that? Imagine a squid with tentacles 30 feet long. Oh my god. This thing has two whips. Those whips are covered with suction cups the size of this notebook. The squid grabs and impales its prey with those whips and drags it towards its beak, shredding the flesh as it goes. That thing's killed seven people in the last week. That's seven we know of. What are we waiting for? See you in ten minutes. Those kids are in way over their head. Get out of the water! Keep seeing your faces. Well, I can blast the beast out. You still don't understand what it is that we're up against. Get us out of here! So I, unlike you, have not read the uh, source material for The Beast. My uh, entire impression of this story is going to be based off of this 1996 TV miniseries. Um, That's cool. That's what I'm reviewing. I'm, I'm not going to do any comparisons. <laughs> um, but I think that you can attest that, that I've long had a fascination with giant squid. <laughs> in fact, uh, we're going to later talk about the movie Orca, which is set in Newfoundland. But this movie should have been set in Newfoundland. I wanted to see old Doyle fighting a giant squid. <laughs> Yar. Yar, that'd be a good movie. But um, that's not the movie we have. What we have, at least to me is, I think, a movie that could have been moderately entertaining if it was maybe one evening of television, but that stretched over into two evenings of television, and with the not-great special effects that they were able to render the squid, uh, any teeth that the story did have was either completely blunted by television or 100% wholesale stolen from Jaws. The characterization of an obsessed uh, person who spends their entire life obsessed by a squid who uh, eventually ends up being solely (laughs) eaten by one, we've seen before. The community that rallies against, you know, logic in order to defend, you know, the tourist industry, (laughs) uh, 100% from, from Jaws. It really felt like, to me, they just replaced the shark with a giant squid. And, uh... Okay, well... I will actually tip my hand a little bit to the book. Uh, the book is exactly like 
this. Uh, okay. It's the book is Peter Benchley ripping off Jaws. Okay. So they actually didn't change very much for this this remake. They were authentic to the source material then. Yeah. So. Uh... And I, I couldn't agree more. One of my notes is something exactly that you just said, which is this could have been. Uh, one really good movie, but it was. It, it didn't. They didn't need to stretch it out into two parts, and we kind of got the idea. And again, it was just one of these things. I, I reviewed it a while back, and it's in in uh, the podcast made for TV Stephen King adaptation. And I just thought it seemed foolhardy for them to even attempt such a project for network television. Like, how do you do it? I think there's a percentage of that with the Beast, whereas I thought that the it at least fifty percent pulled it off. The the Beast just did not. Really, I I disagree with you a little bit. I thought some parts of the Beast were really good. Um, maybe it's because I like the giant squid. And <laughs> the thing about the Jaws formula is it's a good formula. Once once you can get over the fact that you're ripping off, I mean, take the ride. You know, we took I, the I ride for Piranha, comments. so why not take the ride for <laughs> for Beast? I hear yeah. you. Um, one of my other notes is uh, I don't say this very often but i really think the beast could use a remake and they could maybe go a little bit cgi with it yeah uh, the, those um animatronic tentacles or whatever they were um i mean they were serviceable for a 90s made for tv squid movie but they weren't they didn't really sell it yeah yeah, uh, the any time they really needed to focus on the squid, and this was a similar problem with the the Piranha movie we were talking about. It was a tough sell. It was either bad CGI or it was blurry or like the size was confusing to me. Sometimes underwater it seemed vastly huge, but when it surfaced, less so. Like there's an inconsistency to it. But yeah. a, a lot of that stuff I would be very forgiving of. But the stuff weighing down it, the the. Uh, romantic interest that goes on between uh, William Peterson's daughter and this uh, scientist who is helping study the squid and her girlfriend. Who literally says, who literally says, I feel like we've known each other our whole lives. That line um, happens. Which, that line is spoken. Was, <laughs> like his suicide note or something. Like there's no way he's not going to die in the next scene when he goes down in the submersible. But it's funny, like, doesn't her best friend, she gets dumped and is heartbroken, but then, you know, jumping on another guy the next night and she's over it, right? Uh, <laughs> then this is sort of mirrored by, she genuinely makes a connection with this guy, and then he gets eaten by a giant squid, and, <laughs> and she goes into a period of mourning, like... And I, I gotta tell you, I wasn't spending the entire movie going, will William Peterson and Karen Silas get together? Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. <laughs> My day will be made or broken on whether or not these two people end up bonding through this squid adventure. <laughs> well, you know, it did throw a wrench into their relationship because there was one point, I think it must have been when his best friend, when this threw me for a loop, his best black friend who i just assumed was going to be the first one to die yeah because this was still when the black guy dies first era of movies which thankfully uh, horror movies are moving away from um his friend shockingly doesn't die but almost dies and then he gets drunk and yells at her and then that's the big crisis in their relationship like <laughs> the kind of thing that you know, if you get drunk every night and yell at her every night, that's a thing. But, you know, your friend almost gets eaten by a squid. 
you can get you can be a little bit angry. That's okay. Well, and he felt personally responsible. His buddy probably wouldn't have been out there if the situation had been different. Blah blah blah. But uh, my point was that I just didn't care about the relationship. I wanted a giant squid movie, not this, you know, <laughs> this romance. I also can't help but feel like there was a scene missing in this. And again, if you're more familiar with the book, but the character played by Charles Martin Smith, who uh, is the corrupt city councilman who's making all the bad calls and uh, gets bullied into being on the boat for the final big fishing adventure at the end, and he steals mm -hmm. the raft to sail away because he's a coward. Wasn't there supposed to be a scene where the squid, you know, yanked him off the boat and ate him or something like this? Like, <laughs> it, yeah, there was that scene. Did he get eaten was by it the? Not on. Yeah, he got eaten by a squid because uh, my notes about that is. Um, How did I miss that? Oh, last I remember seeing boat. him. Yeah, the last yeah, I remember. He drove away in his boat, uh, but then the squid was attacking our hero's boat and his boat would have been quite far away but then the squid swam through time and space i guess to eat him oh. but there was that scene because it confused me about like i thought the squid was somewhere else having a fight with our hero well this is not uh, speaking well for this movie because i watched it recently and i must have completely <laughs> fucking blanked out that like as far as i'm concerned he vanished from the movie that's so weird dude i'm i apologize I promise you Don't I did. Don't apologize to Peter Benchley. Yeah, indeed. But I promise you I did watch every minute of this Beast miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> I would not make you watch it and ignore it myself. That's funny. Well, okay, then I guess they did hit that note. In a way, like it would have been an accidentally refreshing thing, I guess. Like, weird. He, <laughs> the, the, the slippery piece of shit manages to slip out of the net just like they tend to in real life, you know? Yeah, he goes back to the town to become rich again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Somehow tell the story of how he personally heroically fought the killer squid. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, uh... I would have watched that movie. Um, <laughs> what I will say for this, um, not the last time, maybe the second to last time I was on the show, we reviewed a movie, a miniseries called Rose Red. Yes. Um, which I likewise didn't think was all that great. I had I had some good things to say about it, um, but mostly it was pretty low quality. And the same with this one, but the same as Rose Red. Uh, when I finished the first disc of this, I was really eager to watch the second disc, even though it wasn't all that good. It was still it held your the attention. thing that I did you. Yeah, um, I mean, I I, th I think it held my attention less. <laughs> um, I it, it sort of ends with Larry Drake and his drunken fishing voyage, having thought that they've successfully killed the squid, right? And credits yeah, so movie we, over. We, we introduce Larry Drake to our. No, listeners. we haven't mentioned Larry Drake. He's sort of, I guess, playing the Clint role, <laughs> except for instead of being a super awesome hunter, he's just a drunk idiot. <laughs> I mean, maybe he was a good and fisherman he, when. No, he's fishing. responsible for deaths. So when they know there's a giant squid, there's those two uh, extreme divers that want to dive. That's right. And he irresponsibly takes them out on his boat and lets them dive, and then they predictably get eaten by a squid. And that many a tear are shed. Yeah, that's the first boyfriend that dies. <laughs> yeah. And then he kills the first squid, too, which was in a climactic showdown, but then it turns out it was just the baby squid. Weird, because I have this weird memory, like in this other movie, Jaws, where they catch this tiger shark, and then they have to confirm that it's not the actual... 
Hmm. <laughs> Weird, because I'm getting flashbacks from this movie Orca, where they accidentally kill the baby Orca, and then the mother or, or the father Orca then exacts its revenge in entirely the same way. Huh? Huh? It's almost like these movies are a tag team and ripping each other up. Do you? I don't know. I don't want to be mean about the beast. Like again, I've seen way worse movies, but I I wanted it to be going at double the speed that it was. <laughs> There's just this sort of like need to let's just keep moving, you guys. Did we need that scene at the bar? <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. there's a, there's a lot of fat to be trimmed. <laughs> And well, it, and another thing is it really needed a different protagonist. Yeah. The um, William Peterson uh, wasn't doing it for you. William Peterson. Um, he, so for those of you familiar with uh, CSI, he's the a bearded policeman on CSI. But he's he's just kind of got like a sitcom dad vibe to him. Like there's just something. His character is supposed to be this hardened fisherman type which by the way sorry i said i wasn't gonna reference the book again but this is just a curious change that they made okay um so in the movie he plays a guy named whip uh dalton whip is short for whiplash um in the book the guy's name is whip darling so they changed darling to dalton for no reason that i can really imagine except maybe they thought darling sounded Darling. To, yeah, but he actually looks like a darling. He's a kind of darling guy. Um, but in the book, his name was Whip because his dad used to beat him regularly with a buggy whip. So he was that kind of like he Damn grew up kids. in a really tough household. Like he 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 could have been played by Quint from from Jaw. Right. Or like Sean Bean. If they cast Sean Bean as him, I think that would have been the perfect choice. But instead, it's like. I don't know, this sensitive, beardy 90s guy. He was yeah. just too gentle. He's got that non-committed almost beard all the time. And I get the mm-hmm. feeling like every now and then he shaves it and then he goes, oh my God, what have I done? And he grows it back <laughs> as quickly as possible. He's sort of like me. He's a little bit beard dependent. <laughs> yeah. But um, I didn't feel it either way. I, I, I definitely didn't necessarily buy him 100% as this guy who spent his life on a boat. You know, he didn't. This guy would cry if he scraped his knuckles. I think <laughs> he looks like he's got soft hands. We yeah. get a close up on his hands, but you'd be surprised to find too many calluses there. And the, generally speaking, the writing. I know. I mean, I, eventually, I assume didn't do the adaptation, but just like how perfect his relationship is with his daughter, and just you know, the hard setup of you know, the tragic past with his wife dying at sea, and. Uh, uh, there's, it's one of those movies that you kind of felt like you've already seen it, even if you haven't seen it while you're watching it. You've got this vague sense like you've seen it before. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that's comforting if you're home and sick or you just want to watch something to fill the time. But uh, I don't know. It's too long. You're right. Remake it. Give, give us a two-hour version of this story. And, you know, spend some money on the special effects. Give it some teeth. Yeah, well, what I would say about it... Um that they did well. I thought the cinematography was really good. Actually, uh, weirdly the same as with Orca, which I'll save my opinions for Orca until we get to Orca. Um, but the underwater shots were really good and the diving shots were really good. So when, when you get these big rubbery tentacles reaching over the boat, that needs some work. Yeah. But some of the, like when the scuba, di- scuba divers were underwater with the squid, I thought that actually looked pretty good. That sold me. Right. 
Well, as far as cinematography with like monster movies or especially water monster movies, anytime you have like the camera like mounted on the prow of a boat and it's just going over, you know, unsettled water, dark water in the ocean and even the slightest hint of like sinister music and you're halfway home. Like for me, like I said earlier in the introduction, the ocean is just terrifying. And what should have made the beast an amazing movie is that this is not a made-up creature. These things exist. And uh, my fascination... Well, and unlike Shark... Sir, go ahead. My fascination with the, the, the giant squid should have taken me most of the way home for this movie. Like, I want this movie to be good. I want a giant squid movie. Please. This just wasn't it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what I was going to say is, unlike sharks, squid really are vicious and violent. Absolutely. Like, sharks, for the most part, are scared of divers. Even great whites, for the most part, would avoid a diver rather than bite it. But squid are, like, vicious hunters yeah they figure if you're there you're you gotta be some kind of food they don't yeah. give a fuck <laughs> good enough squid don't give a fuck below the surface of the sea far far below in impenetrable darkness at unimaginable pressure no form of life we know could possibly exist here, there is only silence. And the crew of Deep Star Six. Six months at the bottom of the ocean. It's more than I'm bargaining for. They are explorers. Let's bring it aboard and get the hell out of here. What's the matter? Are you gonna let a few ugly fish carry? They are invaders. Okay, boys and girls, don't try this at home. In a world which no human being has ever entered. Sonar contact. Down here? I'd like to go out and take a look. Contact closing. 300 meters. What the hell is that? 250. Look at that mother. 200 meters. 150 meters. I think we're in big trouble, boss. 100 meters. Get the hell out of here. Now, they are about to make a startling discovery. Not all aliens come from space. So, uh, Deep Star 6, I am... This is a, one of the crop of movies that happened in the late 80s where they had these deep-sea thrillers coming out like it and elbowing each other out to reach the cinema. There was this, there was Leviathan, there was The Abyss. Uh, like, there's something going on where all of a sudden we needed a lot of water monsters, a lot of science fiction shot on the ocean. And they're typically really, really tough movies to make. This mm -hmm. is sort of the weaker, scrappier little brother of the bunch. <laughs> it clearly doesn't have the budget of uh, the other movies that it's competing with, but I will make the argument that it has the heart that some of those other movies <laughs> lacked. <laughs> it's directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who brought us the original Friday the 13th, um, and uh, is a charming individual, but uh, I... I as a technical director, I've never been blown away by, like, that scene just absolutely 100 clicked out the door. What I've always liked about Sean S. Cunningham is how excited he is about the idea of making a movie that 
is really going to make the audience get excited or, or like like that when for him it's not someone saying that that was the greatest movie i've ever seen for for cunningham it's like man did i ever jump when jason jumped out of the lake man <laughs> you know he builds his movies around moments and by his by his standard this was very ambitious filmmaking but yeah. he does not have the budget to pull off this premise at all but he does they definitely were scenes where the underwater laboratory looked like toys in a bathtub. Absolutely, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. It's like a smoke-filled aquarium. Like it's 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 sixties-level <laughs> bad special effects at time. But whereas the production design and the effects aren't there, I think that the cast he comes together with is trying so fucking hard for him <laughs> to make this work. <laughs> I uh, I had a, a I used. I liked this movie when I was a kid for no other reason than I just didn't think deeply about it. And it was like a deep sea monster movie. And that's the kind of shit I liked when I was a kid. And, uh, I randomly ordered it from Amazon. It cost me like four bucks. And when it got here, I was all disappointed. Full screen. It's going to be in the box. Piss me off. So I ended up watching it in the garage on the old tube TV very much the way I would have watched it <laughs> when I saw it on VHS for the first time. And I've just, I time-traveled with this movie, man. <laughs> I go back to where I, when I was talking about Piranha. I am not going to sit here and tell you that Deep Star 6 is a good movie, but I'm going to sit here and tell you that I had a really good time <laughs> watching Deep Star 6 in my garage. Uh, this, this movie is... Uh, <laughs> it's Well, I don't even know if it's fun to watch or if it's just because we both were about 12 or 10 or whatever when it came out um it it left its imprint on us um you mentioned that there was uh there were all those deep sea movies scrambling to uh whatever uh scrambling for deep sea movie dominance in the late 80s 80s. yeah Uh, this one feels to me like a really deliberate knockoff of of the abyss um like i Okay, it seems like two things. One, a knockoff of The Abyss, and two, a knockoff of James Cameron's previous blockbuster, Aliens. Right. Um, and it felt like it... it um, I don't know what to say. It, it, all, all of its premises were ripping off various elements from both of those movies, but then, as you say, there's something like childishly excited about the director that makes it feel not like a a tired knockoff um like other movies we might perhaps be talking about in a little bit there's there's weirdly joy in this movie when somebody like delivers a line that is nonsensical counterproductive to the group and like silly and awkward I, I picture Sean S. Cunningham saying cut and then smiling going, nailed it, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, perfect, right? <laughs> like, it's not that he knows that he's making a, a bad movie and then he's putting his heart into making this movie. And I do think he was earnestly making a thriller here. This isn't winking at the audience. That's what part of what makes it so so great. I also love... No, it's really earnest. It's it, so earnest. Absolutely. I love the old tech in it, too. Like, that all those are big square buttons that light up when you press them. Or when mm-hmm. they say, are you recording this? He said, okay, I'll set up the VHS. There's something really terrifying to me about the premise about a bunch of people living at the bottom of the ocean when their their high-tech equipment is VHS tapes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the sets feel like they're taped together. It adds to the danger somehow. Yeah. And there's something about 
the silly Muppet monster that they end up fighting, which never the Muppet monster never <coughs> looks good. Excuse me. But you're right. Sorry, Muppet monster uh, never looks good to you. Yeah, but it never looks as bad as it would if it was gratuitous CGI either. Like there's something there's something loving about the way that this movie is put together. It certainly is guilty of the inconsistent size, although they mentioned that it could be many creatures. And I don't want I was going to wait till Deep Rising, but I was going to argue that maybe some of the monsters unleashed from the cave were the same monsters that we will later encounter in Deep oh Rising. Oh my god. Right? Unofficial sequel. Unofficial yeah. sequel. Am I wrong? We'll talk about it, but yeah, Deep Star 6 Rising. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, I guess they're building some sort of military platform at the bottom of the ocean. I don't remember the specific details of it. Yeah, to shoot missiles yeah. up to whatever. And Cuba. Uh, they, they uncover a cavern beneath the build site, even though the place is already built, which is interesting. But whatever, we don't want to overthink the plot details. When they go to investigate or blow up the cave, some huge monster comes and eats this little mini boat that's in there, this little mini sub. So I'm expect- in actually a pretty tense scene with but, the, when the guys in the mini sub were trying to escape. Yeah, that worked. It was almost white knuckly. <laughs> that scene worked, and those two actors, like I said, were committed. You, that's the difference between hiring actors and just hiring who you have on hand. Because if if they're if it's a good actor, you, he can sell you almost any premise, right? But what I was going to say about the creature was, as they were looking through the, we didn't get a good look at it, but they described it as being huge. So I assume it's not the same creature that comes through the airlock later on that they have to deal with. I'm assuming oh, there was a yeah, bunch of Yeah, I was wondering if we just saw tentacles or something. Oh, maybe. We don't get a good look at it, but like I say, to go to my deep rising theory, maybe they unleashed a whole bunch of monsters from the bottom of the ocean. I want to see that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure they'll make it, because, they, you know, if these, uh, these movies have taught us nothing else. It's that one underwater monster story really has a lot of legs and just keeps giving no absolutely i you know what i'm on board for a remake of deep star six 100 percent. sign me up um i do want to mention miguel ferrer i'm not sure if i'm saying his name right but uh he's a great great character actor and he plays the cooper character in this particular movie where he's always fucking no. it up so you disagree? No, he's not. I don't think he's the Cooper character. Because the Cooper character is somebody that blocks the party out of arrogance or um, refusal to believe in what's going on. Miguel Ferrer's character was a bit of a screw-up. Like, he screwed something up, and then he felt bad about it, and then he got yelled at, and then he felt bad. And then in one of my favorite scenes, and one of the ones that I really remembered when I was a kid... They've got these needles that are charged with CO2, and they're going to stab the beast and kill it. And he and accidentally... He accidentally... Yeah, yeah he... he accidentally kills one of his um, um, crewmates, crew and then he just kind of goes over the deep end. But then he gets um, drugged up to because he starts freaking out. So they drug him up to calm him down, and I assume that's when he starts hallucinating and s- screws up the the escape attempt. So even though he he effectively does plays the same role as a Cooper. It's it's completely different reasons. He yeah. feels motivated to me. Yeah. And he's not just blindly, stupidly counterproductive. You understand where it's coming from, where in a lot of times, in a lot of lesser Cooper roles, you wouldn't buy it. And again, a lot of what you're getting there, I mean, it, it's in the script, but it's delivered to you very well by Miguel Ferrer, who just recently passed away just a week or two ago. So yeah. that was kind of too bad. Um, and... I, You'll I, never hear a review of his 
<laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure he was a big fan of the podcast. That sucks. But uh, I genuinely, like, he was a guy I never always knew his name. I, I didn't always know his name, but he was a, that guy. That guy from RoboCop. That guy from Traffic. That guy from Twin Peaks. That guy who I keep seeing who's always good. <clears throat> and uh, the movie's largely populated with that. The the interesting, strange exception, I don't know if he's good or bad, but our, our lead, our handsome, roguish league... Um, Our magnificently bearded lead. If if the Beast's uh, hero had too much of a sitcom dad beard, this guy had like like a man from the 80s or a beard. He was a My Two Dads beard, right? Which, like... Yes, and by the way, speaking of uh, actors being um, lesser versions of people from other movies, My Two Two dads starring, starring uh, Paul Reiser and who's our bearded hero? Is it the same dude? Um, Evigan? Yeah, the, yeah, Greg Evigan was yeah. in My Two Dads opposite Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser was in Aliens, which this movie was kind of a ripoff of. So they kind of got the low rent Paul Reiser to be in Deep Star Six. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> And a lot of this is just complete gibberish to people who were born, you know, in the 90s. But uh, welcome back to the rest. But um, I'm not even sure if he was the hero of the movie as much as his girlfriend maybe was. But, like, uh, that was the one person. That, I don't know if he was bad, but he was just blind, bland. It seemed like everybody else had interesting stuff to do, except for him. He, he was just the blandly okay good guy. He was the jo- John Snow of Deep Star Six. He was just the hero guy with no particular personality that did heroic stuff because that's what the hero guy does. But you never really get into him too much. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought where you were going with like weird knockoff things before we talked about the my two dads. Matt McCoy, who was the knockoff of Steve Gutenberg, he was replaced <laughs> Steve Gutenberg in the Police Academy series, shows up in a supporting role here as like the chachiest of 80s dudes. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the shower guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he has a memorable death. I will give it that. <laughs> when uh, when I was a kid, that was one of the scenes that scared me when he's trying to come back through the airlock and the creature comes in with him and by the time they pull the suit out of there, it and he have been ripped in half. The horror. Which is, I believe, the cover of Deep Star Six. I think that's the poster. It's just the suit, yeah. 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 Oh, but speaking of the... I had a look at the DVD cover, uh, and just going back to this being a ripoff of two James Cameron movies, the tagline is, uh, and I quote, not all aliens come from space, period, save some air to scream. <laughs> period <laughs> just to say it's got the first uh well the second one is a lot like in space no one can hear you scream and then the first one is kind of um uh kind of abyss like because there are underwater aliens but it, it just it felt to me like there was like it was just always trying to be these two movies <laughs> they wanted our military heroes to be the colonial marines but they also wanted them to be the ed harris crew from the abyss they wanted everything. They were ambitious, damn it. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're a child of the 80s, I think that this is a fun watch. I think maybe if you're not a child of the 80s, that this might just be perplexing. <laughs> 
Is, yeah. Is this just a movie for you and I, Matthew? Like, I, it sounds like we're we're vigorously endorsing Deep Star Six right now. <laughs> is that it's what's like, happening? <laughs> it's a C range movie. Like, if you had to give it a letter grade, it should be somewhere around a C. But in my heart, it's, it's like <laughs> B plus, maybe Have, even A minus. Uh, one more '80s thing before we move on. Do you remember you're talking about taglines? Do you remember the ripped-off tagline from Killer Clowns from Outer Space? I, I, did I ever know it? In space. Did we talk about it? In space, no one can eat ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for working that in. I have to find a way. Welcome to the greatest pleasure ship ever built. Good times forever! <laughs> something here, sir. I've never seen anything like this. It's a malfunction, sir. That's impossible. Where are they coming from? I don't know, sir, but whatever it is, it's, uh, big. They answered a distress call. Where the hell is everybody? Now. What the hell is that? They're dead in the water. I got a really bad feeling about this. The ship's infested! Let's get the hell out of here! What the hell is that? So it took, oh geez, almost 10 years for them to get that sequel out for Deep Star 6, but (laughs) here we are to talk about Deep Rising. Which is uh, not not officially a sequel, but maybe a spiritual one. It, yeah, it's like the '90s version of what Deep Star Six was. Uh, it's this... like a ripoff of a ripoff, <laughs> or an homage of an homage, depending <laughs> on how generous you're feeling. Well, uh, I tend to be weirdly generous when it comes to Stephen Summers. I don't really abide the Mummy franchise, which he started with Brendan Fraser. I'm not a huge fan of that particular thing, but. Uh, his heart seems to be in the right place as far as let's have fun, let's keep it like a spectacle, and let's have a vigorous pace. Um, and, and I can get behind those things. He is, you know, sink or sim, swim, I guess, on his script. And like you say, this movie is a patchwork of other scenes from other movies <laughs> sort of slapped together. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in a good and bad way, I guess I will say, because... This is not a good movie, but once again, I had a smile on my face almost the whole time while I was watching it. So I'm, 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 I feel weirdly divorced from reality. In this age of alternate facts, is Deep Rising in fact a good movie? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think it. I think you'd have to. So I actually liked Piranha. and it was a bad movie that that caught me just right, and I hadn't seen it before. Deep Star Rising, I also didn't think I had seen it before, and then 20 minutes into it, I realized I had seen it before. Um, but coming at it relatively fresh, I would say it leans more towards bad than good. Like, in a, in a list of all kind of bad-ish B-movies, this one... There were moments of charm, and there were moments when it was really annoying. The, the movie was really inconsistent. I don't think it had a strong sense of what it wanted to be. So it, sometimes it wanted to be a scary movie, and sometimes it wanted to be an action movie, and sometimes it wanted to be an action comedy. Right. Um, and 
part of the problem I think with the annoying bits was the casting um, Treat Williams really should have been Chris Pratt if this was made today I yes. think that's the kind of guy he wanted to be maybe a um, more aged weather no, Chris Pratt but yeah I get the idea <laughs> And his the comic relief sidekick was annoying as fuck. I wanted to talk about Kevin J. O'Connor, but please go ahead, finish your thought. <laughs> uh, I think I did. He was annoying as fuck. <laughs> um, he's another one of those guys where I've seen him around, and I'm like, where do I know this guy from? He's been in stuff. What the hell? My friend Ashley Pachkowski and I reviewed a classic motion picture called Flight of the Living Dead, and... Here's that guy again, Kevin J. O'Connor. And he plays in that movie the same thing, really, that he's playing in this one, in that he's annoying and whiny, but we're supposed to like him. And my problem is is that I don't. I didn't in Flight of the Living Dead, and I don't like him here. And he's a big part of the movie, and that's kind of unfortunate. Um, but why it doesn't sink the ship for me is that I think that this movie has got a batshit insane quality. Uh, as far as comparing it to a movie that you and I reviewed, remember the uh, remake of The House on Haunted Hill? I sure do. Uh, the Famke Johansson was in it as well. This seems a movie very much of that age, where the special effects that we're seeing at the time were fucking amazing, but in 2017 look ridiculously CGI, so we're getting this weird detachment sort of thing happening. But I kind of have to appreciate how crazy this movie is. <laughs> like, <laughs> almost to the point where, like, it felt like it was a nice, safe PG adventure movie that you could take the kids to almost, and then some dude gets vomited out of a monster and half of his face is gone and he's screaming and being digested. And like, okay, so we're leaving the kids at home. All right, it <laughs> seems a little bit too dumb for adults, but all, all, all right. <laughs> and the grotesque scene where they're talking about the monsters and like, they don't eat you, they drink you. Yes. Like, and then we see, we see them getting drank by these tentacle monsters and it, it is a i mean it's not horrifying but it's generally gross icky scene yeah uh but then the same movie has them ski doing down the hallways of <laughs> a sinking a cruise liner ship and and jumping away from explosions just in the nick of time in a way that you'd think would just have to be deliberately cheesy but I, I, I don't know. Again, I, I wonder if Stephen Summers really thought he was making this thrilling spectacle. Because I think, intentionally or not, this movie's kind of hilarious. <laughs> the um, escaping from, from the monster on uh, uh, jet skis reminded me a lot of my favorite scene uh, from Escape from L.A. where they were just surfing, surfing. for no reason. They were surfing away from from Los Angeles and it didn't belong in that movie and it destroyed the tone such entirely as it was <laughs> yeah but it was also kind of fun to watch but escape from LA knew that it was stupid my question to you is the did, does deep rising know that it's stupid I know that it's campy I know that it's sort of set in a fun world and sort of an Indiana Jones universe but are we to be taking it seriously <laughs> like well, yeah, that's like I think it was a bit of a mess because at some points, yes, and some points they decided to go full comedy, and they didn't even do it. It's something like from dusk till dawn, where it starts in one tone and then there's a a, a distinct switch halfway through. All this of a sudden, would be we like get a new movie. Yeah, back. 
yeah, back and forth. And, and again, the annoying sidekick. I couldn't tell if he was trying to do his Kato Kalen shaggy from Scooby-Doo impression or like, is that his voice or is he trying to be endearing or what's going on? He's got this weird shaggy uh, from Scooby-Doo. Oh, geez, quality <laughs> through the whole movie. And I think that the biggest defeat for the character is that they make us think, oh, no, that he's been killed, right? And then there's this last second reveal. Oh, he's alive. And we're supposed to be happy about this. <laughs> yeah. oh, fuck. By like... the way, I said Kato Kalen. I meant Casey Kasem. Casey Kasem. I see. Okay. Yeah, he's the voice. Sorry. Apology to your listeners. That's okay. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, the other thing I found interesting, uh, Wes Studi. You know Wes Studi? He was the big... Was he the head of the Marines? Yeah, he's sort of the or big the bad in the movie. He was the main villain in the Michael Mann's version of Last of the Mohicans. Uh, yeah. He's a Native American actor. He's uh, He's got a really strong presence, but an unavoidably tough guy face. Like, he's practically got that Danny Trejo mug where you almost have to cast him as a villain. <laughs> like, um, I, I thought he did reasonably well with the material and the fact that he was being, you know, given, asked to do more than he's asked to do in a lot of movies. I think that that guy's got game. And I, I did kind of, uh, I was amused by his ending. His character's ending was kind of, I thought, clever. Yeah, that was a good scene. Do you want to, do you want to talk about it for your listeners? That was one of the ones that I thought had some originality behind it. Yeah, well, he's being uh, pulled in by this tentacle monster and about to be killed, and Kevin J. O'Connor's character, the whiny bitch guy that we've been complaining about, gives and him. And a... he's he's been trying to kill for the last yeah, five he... minutes or so. So they're they're chasing around and he's finally got him cornered yeah he nobly gives this dude a, a a sidearm a gun so that he can take his own life and not be subjected to being slowly drank and squished and mutilated by this terrible tentacle monster and he instead fires the gun at our <laughs> at our would-be hero and wastes the last bullet in the gun so that when he tries to turn the gun on himself it it, it goes empty right uh, it was a really great supervillain ending for that guy, and it was the first of two supervillain endings that we were going to be treated to. Uh, uh, the, uh, there's another supervillain death in the film. Uh, this character, Simon Canton, played by Anthony Held, H-E-A-L-D, however you say that name, uh, who's been just this duplicitous son of a bitch, you know, through the whole movie. You know, he, he jumps a great distance onto a boat and gets his legs brutally broken and is slowly driven into a collision, which is a colossal explosion. It's like this completely wily coyote death. And yes, as I describe it, it's stupid. But the whole movie is stupid. <laughs> like, it's very watchable. Like, I kept the popcorn coming and I had a smile on my face. And I don't know, I think that's what the movie wanted of me. <laughs> uh, yes, Kevin J. O'Connor was irritating. And I'm not going to pretend anything otherwise. But there was enough monster movie spectacle going on around it that, uh, you know, I, like, in a low-rent, C-minus kind of way, gave it a pass. Yeah, I, I mean, if I gave it a pass, it would be a really bare pass. There were bits that I liked. Uh, so the beginning scene uh, when Treat Williams, our action hero, for mm -hmm. some reason, um, he's like a he has a boat and he's 
he's transporting these, as we find out later, um, robbers to this cruise ship to rob everybody. And there's that scene where they're introducing the crew, which is a pretty paint-by-numbers scene where, you know, there's the tough guy, and then there's the even tougher guy, and then the even tougher guy, and they're all in the Australian womanizer. um, Broad stroke characterization of all the characters that are going to die in the next 90 minutes. Yeah, and it was... But that scene actually flags up as one that I kind of liked because even though it was so paint by numbers and you knew exactly what the scene was and you'd seen it a million times, there's a certain charm and chemistry between the actors. Yeah. Um, but then they just kept switching the tone. Um, you know, then they're going to kill the annoying guy whose name I've forgotten again. <laughs> and uh, Joey was the character. Kevin J. O'Connor is the actor. Just a standoff. Ah, uh, they're gonna kill Joey. This is the first time that we realize that the movie kind of wants you to, wants Joey to be alive, or wants you to want Joey to be alive. But yeah. They can never quite achieve that. Um, and then when they switch to him, it's like this comic relief. And okay, his new name is Jar Jar Binks. He's totally the Jar Jar Binks. When he's on screen, not only sucks out the energy, but it creates this annoyed energy where you just wish it would be over. He, and then he disappears for a while, and it's kind of fun again. He is anti. He kills any tension in any scene that he's in. Yeah, it's true. And he gets a lot of screen time. More than he should. It's too bad too because the actually the actors around them, a lot of them have come up to other bigger things. Cliff Curtis is in this uh, new Fear the Walking Dead TV show. Jason Fleming's a very talented British actor. Digimon Honsu got nominated for an Academy Award for Amistad, and he takes an axe in the head <laughs> when they open the oh, bank yeah. vault in this movie. Like uh, the supporting players, although like at this time in their career were just up and comers, a lot of them have blossomed. So it's kind of interesting to watch for the faces in that way too. That axe in the head death was a good one, by the way. It was one of those surprising ones where they ship and everybody's dead. It's this ghost ship, and they're they're. I don't know if they know there's a monster or not, but something's going. No, they do. They were chased onto an elevator. Yeah. Then the elevator door opens, and he gets an axe in the head by this last pocket of crew remaining that think that there's a monster coming through, and I, it's just so abrupt. Yeah, I believe they were actually getting into the safe. Because uh, he, when the door started open, he was saying money, money, money. And when ah. the door swings open, he takes this uh, axe in the face. But it was, we weren't expecting that to happen. And he was a badass. So he was either going to have to be caught off guard or, you know, like it was kind of a, you know, West Studi's character screams, he just killed one of my best men. Because the guy who did it too is this cowardly, smarmy bastard. <laughs> who, we, it turns out, is the Lex Luthor of the, is the criminal mastermind that. Yeah, it, that was him, right? Yeah, the he disabled that... the ship. He made all you know the robbery and some sort of stupid insurance scam plan. If everybody is disappears, he you know he had the most luxurious cruise liner in the world, but he somehow didn't think it was going to make money. Yeah, and then these creatures showed up. They don't know why. We know why. It was because the drill team at Deep Star Six set off that explosion. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've seen the prequel. We saw the prequel. But these creatures showed up and foiled everybody's plan. The guests' plan for a nice vacation and this evil asshole's plan to kill all those guests and get all their, their treasure or no, their money or whatever. He was never going to kill them, though, was he? He just wanted to rob them? He didn't become a psycho killer until towards the towards end of the, the movie where the went, script called for it. <laughs> it was time to go full evil, I guess. I don't, like, it's not a movie that asks you to think super deeply about it, I guess. 
Well, and I would say with sort of the conflicting what kind of movie this is, I had a note that I think if they were trying to make it suspenseful, that we don't see this ship get attacked by the monster in the earlier scene, but they just get onto the ship right. and it's it's abandoned and everybody's dead for some reason. But if we had missed that, then we would have missed that woman sitting on the toilet and just getting brutally eaten by the awful monster coming out of the toilet and an almost Peter Jackson <laughs> gratuitous use of pink blood. <laughs> Well, and we could have done that in a flashback scene. There's a lot of weird uh, things that they could have done to make it better. You were talking about the the conflict with the, the these badasses before they arrive on the ship. Uh, on one hand, they seem to be super professional and like lethal and have a chain of command. But on the other hand, they have all these petty differences and they're always talking shit to each other. Well, well, which is it? Are they a well-oiled machine or are they a bunch of fucking idiots, right? And yeah. they're whatever they need to be in a given scene, just like you said with our villain, you know? When he needs to be the desperate guy who needs a rescue, he's that. When he needs to be the big bad, he's that. And, and you know, paint by numbers, I, I think, is what you said earlier. And, and that is definitely what this is. If you want to see what, like, 90s sci-fi action looked like, well, th- I guess this was it. <laughs> well, except... I keep coming back to the movie didn't quite know what it wanted to be. So I didn't know that this was directed by the guy that directed The Mummy, but The Mummy knew it was an action comedy. And yeah. I mean, maybe it was slightly better cast than this. I actually like The Mummy more than you do, apparently. Um, but this was just, it it just didn't do anything all that well because it wasn't sure what it was supposed to be doing at any point. Maybe it was just so greedy to try and appease everyone that it sort of just became bland as a result. I think we both agree yeah. that we could have done with less Kevin J. O'Connor. More Treat Williams. Actually, I thought that Treat Williams did a pretty good job with the material. God, I, he was good in the movie Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Yeah. And just that movie. That's as it. Far as That's I it. There's nothing it. else. I, you know, I kind of got like, the, this is you talked about the low-rent Charlton Heston. Uh, in Piranha, this was our like low rent Harrison Ford. Uh, you know, he was his Millennium Falcon was his beat up ship, <laughs> the boat in the ocean. Yeah. Like that's the whole he vibe. Had, he had Han Solo lines. The, yeah. I got a bad feeling about this. He yeah. obviously was trying to play Harrison Ford. Yeah. Uh, and I so, but the sad news is, is that they probably just got Treat Williams because they couldn't get Bill Pullman. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people said no to this before they got... I'm sure nobody thought, Treat Williams, he's he's the face of this franchise. Which, by the way, I think they intended to make it a franchise. We wanted more. Because when they escaped to that island, there's a monster on the island who's like, here we go again. Yeah, what, what are we going to fucking deal with now? Sadly, it was not to be. Unless there is a sequel to this movie that we have yet to discover. Maybe there is like a quiet trilogy of sea creature movies that we'll find. We should keep our eyes open. Do it. Strange. This river's usually full of catfish. What? I found something. What was that? of years, they ruled the water, a perfectly evolved killing machine. Let that shark went back out to sea. Now, forced from the depths, fueled by hunger, and driven by instinct, the world's deadliest predator is closer than you think. 
This summer, fear strikes were least expected. You are not coming back. I don't know why I keep on getting you to review TV movies, so I guess I don't. You, you pick the list, so I won't take full responsibility. But here's what I'll say about Red Water. I mean, I got it in a package of movies called Water Monsters, which included uh, Anaconda, which is a bad movie that I love, Blackwater, which is a movie that I straight up enjoy, and a movie called She Creature, which I'm going to have to give another day in court because I fell asleep when I tried to watch it the first time. But Red Water was the fourth and last movie in this collection. And uh, I hadn't seen it before, but it had Lou Diamond Phillips. It had the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it had sharks. So, brother, (laughs) I was sold. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is a Bayou set shark crime thriller (laughs) that was made as an original movie for TVS. And it's both as stupid as that description would sort of make it out to be as well as in some ways i think better than it has a lot of business being uh my my first note i've got is lou diamond phillips elevates the material unlike treat williams um even though it was bad he's kind of a good actor right (laughs) he is he is earnestly giving he'll never be a great actor yeah he was did this other movie called bats (laughs) Which is just, I love that. just absolutely hysterically awful movie. And he is I just, think we watched it together. I believe we did. But he's like 100% there for you. Like, if you hire Lou Diamond Phillips, that motherfucker is going to give you your money's worth. Yeah. I and think he he's an unsung hero. No, he wasn't tamming it up. He was delivering a performance in a scenario which it must have been real hard not to giggle through. But (laughs) nobody giggles, and that helps Red Water to a certain degree. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say Red Water's an amazing movie, but I had fun once again watching it. This seems to be my mantra through this entire episode. Bad movie that I kind of enjoyed. (laughs) Um, You mentioned Anaconda, and just on the theme of being uh, low-rent remakes, this one really, even though it had a shark in it, it felt more Anaconda than uh, um, Jaws to me. Right. And it probably didn't help. Instead of having hip-hop sensation LL Cool J, they had hip-hop sensation Coolio. That's right. As ice. street smart gangster. Ice. <laughs> yes. Well, but here's the thing. Coolio is playing Coolio in the movie. Like, I don't know how much acting was going on there, but his character had elements to it that kind of surprised me. Um, this badass Australian guy who gets involved in uh, the dealings going on uh, had a twist to his character that I didn't, like, I didn't predict. I didn't... The whole time, whenever a new character was introduced to the movie, I say, oh, I know what's going to happen to that guy, or I know how this is going to unfold. And to the movie's credit, most of the time, I was not correct. It unfolded <laughs> differently than I anticipated. Now, does that make it good? <laughs> no, I guess it doesn't. But uh, if you're a fan of, you know, made-for-TV shark movies that are watchable, this is a made-for-TV shark movie that is watchable. Yeah, it didn't even feel all that made for TV to me. Like, I thought it was just a B-movie or something or some direct-to-DVD. Um, so, yeah, I guess everybody elevated the material above direct-to-DVD. Yeah. Or <laughs> from TV, above TV to direct-to-DVD. Um, yeah, it was okay. Um, Kelly, uh, who was the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Swanson. The, yeah, she was pretty bad for me. <laughs> 
um, particularly because she played an environmental scientist and nothing about her delivery or character made me think of somebody who might be a scientist. And her job was really vague. She was working for the environment and the oil company simultaneous. <laughs> yeah, her job was to do, like, environmental assessments, right? right? Um, yeah, again, I, I've never been blown away by Christy Swanson while still, for some reason, having a quiet soft spot for her. <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but she's fine. <laughs> I will say generously, yeah, she's fine. I'd... I don't know. I think having Christy Swanson in your movie is not a great sign. <laughs> Unless for some reason you're Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which was okay. But she was also in that stupid Steven Seagal movie, Die Hard on a Boat. No, that was Erica Alaniac. Oh. <laughs> We're getting our blonde bombshells mixed up here. Why do I know yeah, that? Why is that information in my brain, Matthew? <laughs> what is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you're just, you're just a secret Swansonian, I guess. Oh, Kirsty, <laughs> what could have been? What could have been? <laughs> uh, anyway, what we were talking about, Red Water. So, right. uh, uh, a man has been released from prison who knows the location of millions of dollars. Do you remember the exact sum? It's not super important. <laughs> but, Four million dollars? Yeah. Uh, Coolio and this uh, other badass dude are supposed to take him, get the money, kill him, and take the money back to this other gangster. At the same time, Lou Diamond Phillips is getting a, a job, half pity job, but half job that he desperately needs from his uh, ex, Christy wife. Swan, ex-wife, uh, Christy Swanson. And uh, this shark has swum, swum to the bayou and has started killing people. And uh, all of these elements sort of collide into a one action-packed thrill ride of an evening. Um, there are... Oh, also the shark is... Uh mystical guardian of the bayou <laughs> as the wise Cajuns tell us yeah the, the, that was pretty sloppily handled I thought the whole sort of they have a little stopping point in the middle of the movie where they stop at like this I don't know what you would call it gypsy Cajun <laughs> village <laughs> uh, family respite it's a, just a real noble savage Cajun scene but usually in a movie like this you only have that scene so that later that that place can be destroyed and we can be sad right <laughs> but uh, no it was just a little you know giving us a little bit flavor of the you know Louisiana and that sort of I mean, I guess I they needed to fill their 90 minutes somehow, but it didn't push much plot for that 10-minute segment. Uh, no, it was just to introduce the mystical aspect of the shark. Yeah. Which Lee doesn't like showed what's... up and behaved on a shark like. Absolutely. They don't like what you're doing to the environment, so the shark's going to come here and punish you. Not. It would have made more sense to send a, you know, a gator or something since it was Louisiana, but what are you going to do? Shark it is. Uh, and they did. They did a lot of calisthenics to get that shark into the bayou in the first place yep. by reminding viewers that this particular type of shark, though it doesn't hang out in rivers, could theoretically hang out in a river. This is, what is it, the bull shark? Yeah. Freshwater uh, can, only... can swim in shark, freshwater. It's true. That is factual, yeah. but they tend not to. <laughs> they yeah, can, no, but they, they tend they not to. They yeah. chose the only one that could, but then it doesn't really feel like it ought to have been there right and there's that's why the mysticism angle sort of gets played that's another weird thing about this movie i thought like they're setting up all these things so at the end you know we know how it's gonna be uh 
Lou Diamond Phillips is going to lose his boat and uh, he's going to lose his business and he's destitute. And there's a reward for this shark. Oh, we're going to fast forward to the ending where he, you know, catches a shark and claims the prize. Well, that doesn't happen. I guess we predictably, you know, we'd be correct in saying that his broken relationship with Christy Swanson is, you know, again, fixed during this adventure. But in the end, he doesn't make his fortune. <laughs> in the well, end, does he go back to work for the oil company? Maybe, presumably. Like, we don't know. Um, the shark doesn't look and good. And the millions of dollars are lost as well. That's right. The money's gone. Right, he doesn't even get the loot. Yeah, he doesn't get the money. He doesn't. He kills the shark, but he doesn't take credit for it. He doesn't get the prize, right? Like, so he's basically that whole time beginning setting up his destitute doesn't really pay off in the way that you expect it to. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but I guess I just didn't see it coming. It was strange <laughs> that that was the choice. Also, I keep on going back in a lot of these movies we're talking about, the actual shark doesn't look that great a lot of the time, so the movie depends more on the stuff going around it, and there's actually a fairly decent sequence where the oil rig, you know, sort of... Uh, goes out of control and they have a, a breach and the oil starts spraying everywhere and they're trying to stop it before the explosion happens and there's a fairly decent action sequence to be made out of that. Again, considering the confines of the budget they were making, I thought the sequence worked really well. Yeah, I thought they did pretty well. I thought the big bad guy's ignoble death was a bit of a surprise too. Exactly. You assume there's going to be a showdown with Lou Diamond Phillips, but no, he just dies quickly just yeah. get stabbed quickly by kind of a minor character. Because you, you kind of figure, like, uh, Coolio is, you know, all gangster. We kind of know, like, he's going to have a this badass gangster ending, which he does eventually get. But you don't see him being quite as conniving as, as he is. Uh, and the other character, the guy that had been out of jail and uh, knew the score, he knew that the second he got the the money that they were going to kill him. So uh, he also conspires and shows to have a lot more evil in him than we sort of expect when we first are introduced to the character. And again, it's not something that's accomplished in any kind of great, brilliant way, but I, I set the bar really fucking low when I sat down to watch Red Water. And again, it's like an, a completely average movie. It's not an enthusiastic thing. If you haven't seen Red Water, I don't think you need to fall over yourself to <laughs> seek it out. But it consistently does better than it you 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 expect it to, in a way like the yeah. stuff that's the the weakest is when we're actually dealing with the shark. Yeah, they don't do a terrific job of building up to sins. Although there was that scene where Luba Diamond Phillips was in the water, and the shark was with him and his friends like, "Be still, and he won't you won't look like prey." Right. And so he's trying to be still and not panic and then he's like fuck it and then he just decides to swim race the shark and he makes it that was i mean you know how it's they're not going to kill him off an hour into the movie but there is suspense for what it's worth yeah and it's it's not the right response but it's a very human response you want me to stay perfectly yeah. still and just let this thing swim up and eat me because i'm not fucking willing <laughs> to do that <laughs> i can relate to that sentiment um, there are some sloppy things. Like you say, I think the spiritual angle that they try to put on the shark, the Cajun angle to the movie, and especially this first kill, which is very reminiscent of the first kill in Piranha, where there's a, is a grandpa and his son, uh, a grandfather and grandson fishing. And the yeah, I was going to mention that when you were talking about Piranha. I was wondering if that wasn't actually inspired by Piranha, which did, I'm sure, inspire filmmakers. I mean, yeah. it was a fairly... 
it could be for what it was. Yeah, no, it's definitely one of those Roger Corman cheapy movies that a lot of people saw in the 70s, you know. This is classic drive-in fare. And uh, it's funny, I think I must have watched this first, but I didn't put it together right away if it was a direct homage or not. I mean, someday I may decide to watch Red Water again. Maybe I'll pay more attention to see how close it was. But in execution and performance, I don't think it's a very effective scene. You got no, a child I... actor, and then you got this old fellow whose voice has clearly been overdubbed after the fact, and it it, it feels really cheap. And it's one of the it's unfortunate because it's one of the first sort of big kill moments in the movie, and I can sort of see it people being turned off by it. That the movie gets you know better after that. Mm-hmm. Another shark movie called Bait is very guilty of it. I can imagine somebody getting ten minutes into Bait and just turning it off. And I encourage you to keep going. The first kill is terrible, but keep going. (laughs) Maybe because I was watching it a low quality um, copy on YouTube that I I didn't catch the bad dubbing and everything looked a little bit worse. So it was kind of more forgiving. Right. And it was never like you always knew what was going to happen. This isn't the kind of movie. I mean, you, you can tell right away probably this isn't the kind of movie that kills kids and at least right. one of them's going to die so it's going to be grandpa yeah it and, is you know, a predictable just, moment in a movie that's not as a rule predictable yeah um but again i guess i'm just tempering it and saying it's not great but it's great by the stance that it's a you know a made for tv shark movie starring lou diamond phillips i guess in that way it defies expectation uh it surprised me by its watchability for sure the ancient Romans called him Orca or Kynus, Latin for bringer of death. He is without challenge the most powerful animal on the globe, the killer whale. Orca has 48 teeth set in two impressive rows. In some respects, the orca's intelligence may be even superior to man's. They remain loyal to one mate for life. As parents, they are exemplary, better than many human beings. And like human beings, they have a profound instinct for vengeance. An innocent creature is destroyed by an act of human cruelty. And the ultimate battle of man against nature begins. Dino De Laurentiis presents Orca. Can you commit a sin against an animal? He followed you. He saw you on the deck of the boat. They always remember the human being who had tried to harm them. He deliberately left you your boat because he wants to fight you on the sea. I won't do that. Now the fish have vanished from the fishing grounds. And it's all because of your whale. And so we come to our last review of Orca, the Killer Whale, uh, from the director of Logan's Run, this movie. (laughs) Fun fact. Um, (laughs) This is definitely... It actually had that kind of quality. It had the kind of quality of those highfalutin, dark sci-fi movies from the 70s, from the pre-Star Wars era. Yeah. Um, my problem with Orca, well, I have, to be honest, I have lots of problems with Orca the Killer Whale, but I think that, that why it sticks out in this group and why I'm kind of disappointed, uh, revisiting it is that it's not fun. 
I no, think... it's this is the only one that I didn't like watching. It was all of tedious. The, all of the movies that we've watched, good or bad, at least we're attempting to be fun. This movie isn't fun. This movie's trying to be a really fucking hard horror movie, I think. Like, about something thriller. And because it fails at doing that, and because it's, while failing at doing that, it's not fun, it becomes kind of a chore, at, for me yeah. at times. Like, and there's Certain so much either, about yeah. this movie that I want to like, and that I kind of do like. But in the end, uh, I didn't have a lot of fun revisiting Orca the Killer Whale. And I was kind of surprised, because to be honest, I was really looking forward to it. So uh, I uh, have a tempered reaction I, yeah, I think to it. Was, I think it was pretentious. I, I think it was... So you said it was trying to be a horror movie. Um, so Deep Rising, one of my complaints is it was trying to do too much. Orca right. was the same way, but it was so pretentious. So you just get the feeling that it wants to be Jaws. Obviously, it's it comes out the year after Jaws. It's riding that wave. It kind of, I think, wants to be Moby Dick and have this sort of captain versus the sea thing. It's got this really heavy-handed environmental message. It's got the noble Indian who's laying it on super thick. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, like, just... There's... It's just a pile of garbage. <laughs> well, here's the cherry on the top that of that. Can I say about the cherry on the top of the pile of garbage? Please. I think Richard Harris is dancing as best as he can with this material. <laughs> he doesn't okay. flinch at it. He's trying really hard. I think he's a good actor. And, uh, like, uh, I get, you know... A lot of the quiet moments of the movie where he's just staring out at the sea and regretting, you know, uh, the decisions that he's made to lead to this moment. Like, he feels like an old fisherman. I believe him, you know, uh, in those moments. But the rest of the movie, I kind of don't. It's like I have one credible performance trying to hold together a completely incredible movie, <laughs> right? Yeah, but his credible performances weren't even really working for me and unfortunately this one we kind of have to get into the plot yeah, or why for why sure. it falls apart um but basically he's trying to capture a live orca after um who's the woman at Bo, Bo Derek? um the main female character charlotte rampling Bo Derek is the woman who breaks her leg oh yeah that's right okay charlotte rampling is a marine biologist who gives it begins with this really long expository um, talk about how intelligent and powerful orcas are and how they have vengeance and love and all this stuff. And then our hero Nolan go, goes to capture one alive because he can make money and he accidentally, what he's got like a tranquilizer, he loads up too much, misfires, doesn't hit the male orca but hits. It's the female orca drags it on the boat. She miscarries. Has a, a miscarry, and actually, I think one of the two good shots that miscarry was really horrifying. When that whale fetus falls out of the her vagina onto the boat, and he sprays it off, horrified, of course. And we find out that he has a personal history where he can relate to what it feels like to lose uh, a mother and a child simultaneously. Yeah, and yeah, and this is where part of where I think his good acting actually weirdly hindered the movie 
Because we find out at about the halfway point that he knows what it's like to lose a kid because of a drunk driver that killed his wife and kid or pregnant wife or something like that. But the problem is it's all telling, no showing. So we don't actually care. We just get this guy kind of being sad about something that we have no experience of when we thought this was a whale movie that we were getting into. Yeah. And so it seems like when they try to because at first he's like a smarmy fisherman uh it really gross flir- flirtatious scene where he <laughs> seems to be threatening to date rape the and marine you just biologist. know he smells like fish and cigarettes right <laughs> like... yeah and then all of a sudden they decide to humanize him but maybe they do too much and there's none of the background that would make us think that he's human or care that much they also go out of their way to show that the killer whale is actually a friend to the humans before everything <laughs> turns bad. In one of the earliest, hilarious, most hilarious scenes of the movie, uh, a diver is saved from a shark, a potential shark attack by a killer whale. It actually smashes the shark out of the water. <laughs> it squeals, <laughs> I believe, as it soars through the air. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is a movie where sharks squeal and killer whales roar, roar. like bears. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but you're right in what you say that there's sequences where they show the whales swimming and, uh, like, in all the other movies we don't get good looks at the creatures for the most part, whereas in this one we totally do. So mm-hmm. when we see that mother bleeding all over the place and we see that baby fall on the deck, like, there's a horrifying reality to it which just put a sour, like, glaze over the whole movie for me. It was just so awful. And it's not even done there. There's scenes of the whale pushing his dead mate around the water, trying to get her to swim again. And it's just like, fucking, like, give me a torture porn movie to watch at this point. It was really horrendous. But I, those were the scenes that I liked, because those were the scenes where I actually felt something. Right. Besides boredom i'm not sure if boredom counts as a feeling and how disappointing that we should be bored this movie's set in newfoundland and they they like i, I mean I, we could have had a doyle there we could have seen some of that culture especially since the community turns against them and seem to be really superstitious they had this opportunity to give us some local color you know i was sort of talking about red water they spent all that time sort of absorbing the cajunness of it well they they sent this movie in a place that's very specific has a very you know amusing loud culture that could be used you know to sort of amp this that is important to the plot and they could have the used Cajun that and and they didn't they were just you know dick fishermen <laughs> you know yeah Show us the culture, show us the the community. In their defense, the killer whale does manage to explode some buildings on the shore. Yes. (laughs) Well, and that's the, that's, we haven't even got to the degree, right? Yeah. So your, your, your wife and your kid are killed by this dude. You want this dude dead. But the amount of carnage (laughs) brought among this community from this killer whale and the amount of people to the left and right that are getting killed, I mean... Well, I don't mind that, but I mind a killer whale exploding a bunch of buildings that are on the shore. Like, yeah. Sure, have it terrorize their fishing boats. Why not? Yeah, sinking the boats actually made the most sense. Like, he would know what those boats were. But somehow breaking a fuel line and being able to start a fire that, you know, no, it gets ridiculous. Uh, but And also knowing that he was doing it, I'm sure. Everything about that calculated. whale said it knew exactly what it was doing. Like, it had the blueprints for the town. Um, and this is also tainted because I watched a little documentary called Blackfish, 
if you ever feel the need to have a good cry, you can watch this documentary called Blackfish. Was that the Free Willy one? It's about killer whales in captivity at SeaWorld and how they get driven uh, ag- aggressive and insane by their captivity, which is why a lot of trainers get killed in the tanks with them. Um, right. But they said that specifically that droopy uh, fin that you see on a lot of the whales, and in, in, in when they uh, talk to the people in SeaWorld, they say it's a very common thing for the whales to have that droopy fin. But what they don't say, it's a very common thing for them to develop in captivity. You almost never see it in the wild. That droopy folded fin peeking out of the water should just look like a shark fin or like a, you know, an irregular healthy animal. So the give and take of the fact that we had real whales on display here was that those whales do not live happy lives, <laughs> you know? And on top yeah. of that, they were yeah. cast to star in a movie that portrayed them as monsters. And again, well, I know that's none of the movie's victims. fault, but I, it definitely distracted me. It was in the back of my mind and, and hard to get sort of let go of. Well, let's talk about things that were the movie's fault then. Okay. Um, <laughs> there was essentially no plot. So we've already run down everything that happened. Uh, he, he kills this whale's wife and child. Uh, it terrorizes this town for a long time, and then he has to go out and kill it. That's that's the whole thing. But he's really mopey and sad because he knows what it feels like. So when he goes out to sea, he doesn't even really want to kill it. And you keep giving us hints the whole way through that he really just wants to get killed by it. And then lo and behold, he gets killed by it. So there's no, there's not even any climax he's not like roy scheider trying to save the town from the shark and i have to say so he can get killed by the whale charlotte rampling was just a clear whiteboard like the stakes were not reading to her at all like people were dying the weather was getting colder the ice was crushing them in the boat was starting to sink she was stepping out onto an ice floe there's an aggressive animal trying to eat them and she looked just bored like she didn't want to drop her fucking luggage like (laughs) (laughs) and like she was wearing designer clothes too she she wanted to look good when she got eaten for sure prepared for an expedition um and then um, you also had Will Sampson, the noble savage character, who was, by the way, uh, featured as a noble savage in the classic Poltergeist 2. The other side, Craig absolutely. Nelson, uh, <laughs> uh, and he, I mean, worse than the Cajuns were laying it on thick with their ancestral knowledge. His was just way too much. But then he took a weird, like, for some reason he wanted to kill the whale, even though he was this mythical creature that he'd wanted to protect and then he had volunteers nobody's pressuring him to go help kill this whale and then he does and like halfway through he turns on like it's like his character was being written as they were shooting the scenes yeah he, he, he again he just sort of fills whatever need the screenplay needs him to at a given time and then he's just wiped off the board because this is all a conflict between you know, are, are the main fishermen in this in this whale. So, <clears throat> same thing with the other people who joined the the ship. The one guy's girlfriend's leg gets ripped off by the creature in a really bizarre and horrifying sequence. So we understand Which his is motivation. Sort of liked. Yeah, no, I mean that the idea of that is really scary. As a person who's scared of water monsters, 
the uh, house on stilts that gets knocked into the water and that poor helpless woman with a broken leg being mauled, like that works as a visceral horror movie, but it wasn't fun, I guess. Again, I go back to. But I understand her boyfriend joining it. I don't understand the native guy joining the mission, and I don't understand the one other guy who has like three lines before he gets killed being on board. We don't know who he is. We don't know anything about him other than he's there to be whale food. Uh, it's yeah. weird because I had and this memory. He dies like a mannequin. I don't know what it was, Matt, but I had this memory like when I was a kid that this was a pretty good movie that I liked, and I, I liked it much less upon <laughs> revisiting. Yeah, I used to see it advertised in comic books a lot from from the olden days, uh, and it, the poster looked really exciting. It looked like it should have been a much better movie. I saw it was a teenager, so I knew that it wasn't any good, but I had forgotten how much everything didn't work in it. Yeah, uh, and in the end too, like. It has this weird Frankenstein ending to it, right? <laughs> Where the whale was basically made into a monster by, by the fisherman and then the, pursues his, his creator into the deep you know, depths of the Arctic and kills his creator and then itself disappears into the ice flow. Like, were we supposed to feel good about this, this orca getting its revenge? Like, the way the soft music is well, playing... Well, you don't know. You don't know if it's because alive it or dead, I guess. Because it cuts immediately... To that stupid hippie music at the end. Uh, this is one of the reasons why it didn't surprise me that the guy that directed this directed Los Run, because this is the way all of those pessimistic steady sci-fi movies ended, yeah. with just a quick cut to really on-the-nose hippie music. And now we're out. But, like, for me, if, like, the shark was swimming under, or the shark, sorry, if the killer whale went under the ice and was swimming on under the ice, but it had nowhere to breach, like, it was killing itself, having having killed its its evil enemy, it had no more reason to live, and it was killing itself, then that could have been a moment, could have been a point at the end of the movie, but we don't even get that. We it just swims off somewhere. And then this yeah, nice... Vice, Nolan dies, as yeah. we knew he was going to. As he as wanted he, we to. We knew he intended to 30 minutes earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, it's weird. I'm not going to say I didn't feel anything. Like, there was some stuff in the movie that I found horrifying, and the whale imagery was both beautiful but hurtful to see. And, like, uh, I guess it does sort of twist a knife in your belly a little bit, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, but in a list yeah. full of fun movies, this was not fun. So uh, it's not going to yeah, rank would, super and even, high like, for me. On any list, I can't see it getting better than, like, maybe with a really bad list, maybe peaking at five. But yeah. there's, there's just nothing nothing good about it. But I, I was surprised. I mean, I don't want to give my list away yet. But when I first sat down to do this list, I would not have imagined that it ranked as low as it ends up. So...
fun list of bad movies. That's yeah. right. I think that that's what I, that's what I would want to temper this list. Like, I'm going to rank them from from six to one, but in a way, I'm ranking a, a list of pretty cheesy bad movies that I enjoy. Are they good movies? I don't know if we can make that argument, but they're fun <laughs> movies. So. Um, it's just in another episode, I'm going to be really snooty about some highfalutin Oscar pick, and I'm going to give you know Red Water all the rope it needs to get a passing grade. <laughs> so I don't know what that's about me. Matthew Risling. Uh, okay, should we begin? Yes, please. What is your least favorite of these six films, and why? Well, this will come as a shock to everybody, but uh, I would say number six is Orca, a movie that fails on pretty much every level <laughs> and could have been really good. Um, they were putting I, a lot of production that I... into that movie. Like, they wanted it to be something special. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Yeah. It probably had Put the best... Put a lot into marketing. Yeah, they probably had the best production levels of almost any of these movies really poured into it, but... Hmm. I really think it was a director that was up his own ass. Yeah. I really think he wanted to create something beautiful, and it was just a hodgepodge. It saddens me to do it, but I have to put The Beast at number five. I love the book. I love the monster, and I even liked the show, but it went on too long, and the cast wasn't very good, and the rubber monsters just just didn't quite sell it yeah. when they were out of the water. Um, but it was tough. It was tough between this one and the next one, which was Deep Rising, which was a fun movie to watch, but it was also really annoying in bits. But it was really fun in bits. And the reason why it edges out the beast is because it's just a little bit shorter. <laughs> it's um, a lot shorter. <laughs> even though when Casey Kasem, or whatever that guy's name is, is on screen, it feels a lot longer. You know, it's it's to the point. It gets to the action quickly. Um, and there's some bits that are genuinely fun and some bits that are genuinely surprising. So it's got that. At number four, I have a movie that, as we've discussed, is better than it has any reason to be. <laughs> right. It made for TV Red Water. Um, I animated largely, I think, by Lou Diamond Phillips, but also, as you were saying, just by taking stuff that we knew was going to happen and then not having it happen. Um, it's not a super smart move, but it was smart enough. You know? Yeah. And it was just better than it should have been. Uh, what does that leave? Second that place. leaves the underwater aliens <laughs> meets uh, the abyss meets Friday the 13th to a certain extent. <laughs> um, Deep Star 6, which we gushed over a lot. So... Um, I think enough's been said. Okay. So the same reason that number six was Orca, because it was the only one that was genuinely bad. Right. I put Piranha at number one because it's the only one that I m might actually tell somebody they should go see. It would <laughs> depend who it is. Right. Um, Deep Star Six, I don't know if I think you could really watch it if you hadn't watched it before, but Piranha, it, it's good on its own terms in, in some way that I had a lot of fun with. Nice. Nice. Well, we have a pretty different list, but I don't think we're going to scrap <laughs> over these water <laughs> monsters. Like, uh, it's a matter of degrees. And in a, in a lot of ways, we uh, I think we do agree for the most part on this list. I think the closest thing that we come to disagreeing on is probably Deep Rising. I think I just forgave that movie more than you did. 
But um, I've been watching a lot of more seriously themed movies for the podcast. I was really glad to go back to some of these dumb as shit B-Monster movies. I had a real good time with this. Um, (laughs) I waffled on the bottom, but in the end, uh, I put the beast there. At the bottom of the list. I just... That surprises me. I... (laughs) I don't know, the, just the pure length of it and the amount of scenes that I really was tempted to just want to, you know, skip past or just, you know, cut this. We don't need this moment. And um, they didn't deliver on the beast itself when we finally, finally, finally got to it. I think of all of these movies, it's probably the one that I would least watch again. Be excited about watching really? again. But it only narrowly beat out Orca. There's something about the pro- like the production value and like the, the the harshness of the fact that it comes close to being a legit horror movie. I guess the side swiped me. Um, I found it an unpleasant movie, but in a lot of ways, kind of a well-made <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, and you know, there's I there's if you sort of took the beast and this movie and squished them together. If you had a giant squid attacking Newfoundland, <laughs> I think we'd be all the way home. Um, the degrees of dislike on that is pretty, pretty thin, but that's where I put the stack in fourth place. I put the overperforming red water. I certainly wouldn't want to oversell it, but there are a lot of people out there like me that have the shark thing that are like, will watch shark movies because they want them to be good. And as a result, we get burned like even more so than the zombie genre. I think like the amount of just fucking awful shark movies is just, and this is not that it's not an awful shark movie. It's certainly not an amazing shark movie, but it's not an awful one. It is surprising. Surprisingly watchable. Absolutely. Surprisingly watchable. Raves, Matthew Risling, and Larry Buzz. <laughs> All the way in third place, I got Deep Rising. Oh my god. <laughs> um, it's batshit insane, and, I'm, and, and I say that to its credit. Um, Kevin J. O'Connor is not as likable as uh, everyone involved in the production seemed to think he was, or at least his character wasn't. And I agree with that problem, but there's some, like, <laughs> violent imagination to it. And it's the kind of movie they don't make anymore, and I, I'm weirdly nostalgic for it. <laughs> Just give me a stupid R-rated monster movie, and in a way that you're not ashamed. Like, I'll get behind a low-budget monster movie, too, but time was, you know, studios would actually spend money on these things. <laughs> and I missed that. Um, yeah, both of us have put Deep Star 6 in second place and we are way overselling it like (laughs) i i can't overstate this enough like this is a movie if you're a child of the 80s like matthew and i are i think that you'll get a lot out of but honestly (laughs) it might just be personal it might just be a movie for matt and i but i couldn't not (laughs) put it in second place And again, this surprises me. And like, I watched a crappy full-screen version of it in an old, like, dying tube TV, and it just took me right back to being 11 years old somehow. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to agree with you again once we get to the top. Uh, Piranha, it's it's a B-movie, but it's kind of an A-level B-movie. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> like, um, and a lot of the people who were involved in this went on to greater things. It, it, it's... 
unabashedly is what it is. It's an exploitation monster movie, and uh, it's made on a shoestring budget. And considering everything going against it, it's just an utterly charming timepiece. And uh, it is the one that I can recommend without any guilt. Whereas, like, I was just foaming at the mouth about Deep Star 6 and sort of red-faced defending <laughs> Deep Rising. Uh, I think that Piranha's a lot of fun. And you know what? There's not enough movies out there that are just a lot of fun. So, yeah, I, number I one. Don't think, I don't think it's quite the same quality, but it reminds me a little bit of the movie The Warriors. Warriors. There's, There's... <laughs> It's one of the best representations of a movie at that level from its era. It's right. like a, it, it's just encaptures its time and is better, better than a lot of movies like it. It's the dude. It's just he just fits right into their time and place. They just fit right in there. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, <laughs> you really could have used Sam Elliott narrating now that you mention it. Um, do you, is there any Jerry's honorary Jerry's you want to give out? Best monster, worst monster, best kill, worst kills. Um, well, one this could be a Jerry for best kill because we didn't discuss it. But no. Deep Star Six, um, his the our hero's best friend, the captain, getting squished in the door from a sub. Yeah, it doesn't get just get squished by this door, but he gets like cut in half by it. And you see it coming, you know, you see the, the door won't hold and the metal bar they've got it's starting, to it open is starting to give. And you know what's going to happen, but God, it really looks like it would suck. Yeah. And that's again, like I just picture uh, Cunningham behind the camera, like, thinking, oh, I'm going to get him with this one. They're going to hate it when that door goes down on him. <laughs> There's something really charmingly sort of enthusiastic about Cunningham. He doesn't always make great movies, but I, I don't know. I think he's a charming dude. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's weird because as much as I talk shit about the orca in the orca, the killer whale, in a lot of ways, it was like the best rendered monster that we had in all of the movies. And like I say, those whales were probably not super well treated. There was some good moments in Deep Rising. I mean, a lot of it was heavy, heavy CGI. But like I say, when that uh, dude gets spat out half-digested and screams at the camera for a few seconds, <laughs> I think that's the moment when I really knew this movie's kind of crazy. Like, it's like legit crazy. It's not just that they're trying to make a goofy comedy. It's just something slightly unhinged about it. <laughs> so, anyway... I guess no specific Jerry's, but honorary Jerry's about... <laughs> Jeremy was giving me shit last time I talked to him. I don't do enough Jerry's on the show anymore. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to give me a list of Jerry's to do. I failed you. I failed Jeremy. I failed my listeners. Um, but we're going to hear from Matthew again in episode 100 of Rankin Review. Yeah, and that's coming right up. <laughs> thank you so much, brother. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for uh, a fun list. Uh, it was nice to do something different no ghosts not one ghost in this whole list not one ghost well except for the spirit of the bayou right okay fuck every time <laughs> with the ghosts And so it was that episode 93 came to an end. I had a lot of fun with that one. 
Those were some really good, bad movies. Um, uh, and if you're a person out there that has a similar taste in good, bad movies, you should uh, maybe make yourself known to me. You can do that by writing Larry Parsons at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And I make no lies when I'm talking on this podcast, okay? Matthew will be back for the 100th episode. 100 episodes of Ranking Review. And it's coming sooner than any of us can believe. Thank you for listening, and keep doing it.